So one year ago this past week, our church family was very well shocked. Uh, Dave Sides, who was a longtime member of our church, a friend to so many folks here. He was a pastor on our team, um, a man whose personal godliness was very evident in the way that he lived and in the way that he talked. His godliness was exemplary to all of us. Uh, one year ago this last week, Dave was diagnosed with cancer. As Dave's condition went downhill over the next few months, many of us were able to talk with him, myself included. Um, he would sit on his couch in the living room and he would say with tears welling up in his eyes, why would God give me his grace? Why would he have been so kind to me to save me? I could tell that in Dave's heart, the deepest part of who he was, that the imminence of death had caused the, I don't know if the right word is value, but the importance of salvation just to skyrocket. That, that event, that adversity in his life had caused the weight of salvation to be heavy and good for him. Um, it was through times like Crohn's disease or through times like cancer that he would look back and he wasn't cavalier about it. He wasn't like saying, I'm enjoying this. He wasn't saying, I would want to go through this, but he would say about the adversity that he had experienced in life, God has taught me so much. There's been good that has come out of this. Um, I asked Lori if I could mention Dave today, and she said yes. She said, it encourages me when we talk about Dave and just the good things that God was doing in his life. This is one thing that we can see in his life. Dave was serious about his relationship with the Lord. Now, from our human perspective, none of us would have picked that story to be part of Dave and Lori's lives or our lives. Much rather would have had him part of our church services, leading songs, um, rubbing off on teens, being part of our pastoral team, watching him with his grandkids. That's what we would have picked for our lives. But God brought adversity into his life and into our lives. And Dave could say during that season of adversity, like, God's grace is so good. Um, to expand the circle, many of you have stories of suffering and adversity that you've experienced firsthand. Even right now, for some of you, that adversity is very raw. It's like salt. It's like rubbing alcohol is burning in there. And it hurts. And we are brought back to this question. Uh, do you believe that a sovereign God can use adversity, the painful times in your life, for good? The big idea for the sermon is simply this. Because God has determined the seasons of our lives we should have eyes that look for what is good. I'll say it again. Because God has determined the seasons of our lives, we should have eyes that look for what is good. All right, so point number one in our sermon is simply this. God has determined. God has determined. And we see this in verse 10 with a language that Solomon uses. This is at the end of chapter 6 where he says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. Uh, he's talking about creation here. What exists 
has been brought into existence, and not only has it been brought into existence, but it's been given a name, it's been given an identity, and he in his mind is calling uh, thoughts from Genesis chapter 1 where God brings things into existence out of his sovereign will, and not only does he bring them into existence, but he gives them a name, he gives them an identity. So texts like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, where we see the creative power of God, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now notice what God did. He called the light day. He named it. And then the darkness he called night. Verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And God called the expanse heaven, the skies. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And here he gives this creation a name. He called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And so here's what we're seeing here, that God has the sovereign ability to bring things into existence, to bring things into existence that came from nothing. He speaks, and there it is. And not only does he bring it into existence, but he gives that existence a name. He's the one who is sovereign over all creation. To give something a name is to understand that the giver has authority over that. Um. God is the sovereign one here. But Solomon isn't just looking at creation and stopping there. Solomon gets personal with us next where he says in the second phrase of verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named by God. And look what else. And it is known what man is. In other words, he's now moving in from the universal creation to each of us as individuals. And he is saying, you are known by God. God knows you as an individual. God has created you. He has caused you to come into existence. And even though your parents gave you your name, you've been named by God. He knows you. So we think about texts like Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I even consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And if you've read through Jeremiah, you know that Jeremiah's task was filled with adversity, like in a cistern sinking up to his armpits in mud kind of adversity. People not caring for Jeremiah. And God can say, hey, before you came into existence as an embryo, I knew you. And I had your life mapped out, including this life of being a prophet, which was filled with adversity. And Solomon is saying, look, what is known about you and I as individuals is in the mind of God. God has known us at a deeper level than anyone will ever know us. And this leads to two responses then. If God is so great as the creator over all of creation, and he knows us each one of us, all of us here this morning, and then the seven billion people on the planet, this should bring a response to us. Look what he says in verse 10. We are not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Okay, so we don't dispute. Uh, this is the lesson that God was teaching Job. Job had been brought into adversity. He lost everything in his life except for the woman whom he had married. His children, his wealth, 
his houses, they were all gone. Everything was taken. And at one point, it's as though Job sort of got some boldness to contend or dispute with God. God, how can you do this? But in the end, he realized that he could not truly understand the ways of God. And he sat back in silence and said, it's wrong for me to try to dispute or to contend with God. I shouldn't be bitter at you. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, the created, say to its molder, the creator, why have you made me like this? And, and what's happening here is we're just seeing God is greater. He's the creator. We can't dispute what he has determined. It's actually worthless to dispute God. It says that he is stronger than we are. And the more words that we sort of spew out in disputing or contending with God, he says it's like mist, it's vanity, it's empty. And it's as though somebody might come along and say, God, I'm, I'm kind of mad at you. I'm kind of ticked off at you. And in fact, this isn't fair. And the more that you're speaking, the more it's just like worthless words that are coming out. Now, keep in mind, he's not talking about lament. He's talking about this idea of arguing with who God is. And so because God is the creator and we're the created, he's saying, okay, just see the picture here. You're known by God, no disputing. He says a second thing in verse 12. He says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The beginning of verse 12, Solomon knows the answer to this question. He knows what is, who knows what is good. Uh, let me read again. For who knows what is good for man? Man doesn't know that, but who does? It's the creator. So we're brought to this point where, number one, we're not to contend with God, and number two, we have to realize we are not able to know what is good for us. Um, if we were picking out the story for our lives, let's be honest, we would leave out the seasons of adversity. We don't know what is good for us. Only God knows what is good for us. So think about this illustratively. A young child with limited knowledge is standing in front of you and he's got sticky hands and crumbs all over his face and a saggy diaper. And he's looking up at mom and dad contending or disputing that he knows what's best for lunch. And he's also contending with mom and dad the best time to go to bed. And you look at that little sticky-fingered crumb cruncher and you say, you don't know what's best for you. You are very limited in your perspective of life. And here you have two parents who have gone through the season of life. They have better knowledge than you. They will tell you what's good. And so they sit the child down at the table and they say, you're going to have to eat these carrots, even though they might taste bitter to you. Or you're going to have to go to bed at 7.30 so that you get your rest so that your body can grow. And there's the little kid in bed just shaking their fists or crying, trying to contend with mom and dad that this is not good. You see that at that level. And yet we come to God who is much greater than us as the creator. And he's saying, you don't know what is good for you. 
So we go back to passages like Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine, where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are greater than your thoughts. And so just in these opening verses, Solomon is saying, God is so much greater, he's the creator, he truly knows what is good for us. But will Solomon leave us hanging there? Will he just leave us with a truth that we should be willing to accept and move on? I mean, it's good, we got it. Um, Is he just going to leave us there? No, he doesn't. He actually takes us down a path that feels uncomfortable now. He's going to cause us to think deeply and even bring us to a place where we admit that we have things reversed in our thinking. We have priorities reversed in our lives. We have values. That might be a better way of saying it. We have values reversed in our lives. When you move into chapter 7, he uses the word good nine times. Sometimes it's translated as good. Sometimes it's translated as better. And Solomon is stepping back and saying, you need to know that from God's perspective, even in seasons of adversity, there is something good here. Now, we talked about good last week. How should we understand good? Should we understand good as a synonym for enjoyable? No. When you think about the term good, go back in your mind to Genesis 1, where God creates And at the end of each day, God comes to the conclusion as he sees the order and the structure and the things that he is putting in place, and he says, now that's good. From God's perspective, it has purpose. It has order to it. So we move into point two here. God has determined, point two, what is good for our lives. He's determined what is good for our lives. And if you're taking notes or you grab the handout at the back, we're gonna move through this sort of quickly. There's eight or nine things here that we're gonna rattle off here. What's good? Verse one, a good reputation is good. A good reputation is good. So look what he says in verse one. A good, that's the Hebrew word tob for good, is better, that's the Hebrew word for tob for good, a good name is good, gooder than precious ointment. Uh, What's he talking about there? A good name has the idea of a reputation, but what's he comparing it to? He's comparing it to this perfume, but what you need to realize is that perfume in Solomon's day is not like a bottle of Axe that you're buying off the shelf at Target that everybody has access to. Um, Perfume here is something that's very rare. Perfume is something that's very costly. Only those who have wealth are going to have bottles of perfume in their residence. And so those who have it, you look at them and you know, okay, there's something. There's something because they've got perfume. They've got the possessions there. And Solomon is stepping back and saying, okay, here's the social status of perfume. And you know that this is something that's costly. But I want you to know that You can push through life and make all the economic advances for yourself personally, but you need to know this, that a good reputation is better than materialistic gain. You see people running over others. He's talked about oppression in the book of 
Ecclesiastes here. They're running over people in order to get economic gain. He's saying, no, there is something better. A reputation of godliness is better than economic gain. Okay, we agree with that. Second, in verse one, and the day of death than the day of birth. Um, Second point here, the day of death is good. This is where Solomon gets our attention. We can agree with the first point, but how is it that the day of death is good? He's not saying that you dying is good. He's saying that the day of death is good. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I didn't put it up on the screens if you want to turn back a page in your Bible. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. Here's the oppressed. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are alive. You see, at death, Solomon is saying, all the effects of sin, all of the oppression in life comes to an end. And in that sense, it's good. I was visiting with one of our senior saints. She's uh, 89 or 90, right around there. Um, just this last week, she's got ALS. And it's affected her in ways where now they're having to look at care for her um, outside of the home. It's affected her voice. It's affected the way she talks. And so she's at the, on the couch with a pillow on one side, a pillow on her lap, just to kind of stabilize her. And she says this to me. She says, I've told the Lord I'm ready to go home, but he hasn't taken me yet. That's where she's saying the oppression comes to an end, the suffering comes to an end, the day of death is better than the day of life. And Solomon's point is that from the day you begin to live, you and I begin to experience hardship we experience the effects of sin in this world, and at death, that's all reversed. Third, funerals are good. This is in verse two. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Every time we have a funeral, we are brought face to face with the reality that we will all experience death. So then funerals cause us to step back and consider what we are living each day for. What are we living for? What are we living for? Is it for Christ? Or are we continually pursuing something that is about as thin as vapor? You go to a party on a Friday night. People are standing around enjoying themselves. That's good. Enjoy life. He's been talking about that. Enjoy life. Not bad, but what's better? What's better for us is to come to grips with this reality that someday our lives will come to an end. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Fourth, sorrow is good. He says this, that um, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Verse three Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. What's he talking about here? He's again playing off this theme of death 
Sorrow and sadness are found in the funeral home, and that kind of sadness leads us to consider each day. How can we improve upon it? He's continuing with this theme of death, and again, you have to think about a group of people who are standing around laughing. Is that bad? No. But when we come to grips with what we're living life with for, uh, it oftentimes happens in those moments of sorrow. The pain of losing someone in your life, a relationship being cut off, there is, in those seasons of adversity, there's something good. In verse 5, he begins to move away from this theme of death and brings in other aspects of what are truly good. Starts talking about the contrast between wisdom and foolishness. In verse 5, he says that the rebuke of the wise is good. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So just to understand the context, thorns were um, just really dried out wood. And you throw them under the fire and they'd be the equivalent of dried leaves today. Throw them in the fire, they burst up in flames, but then they're gone. And he's saying the laughter of fools is kind of pointless. They're laughing at folly, nothing of substance. Next one, he says that patience is good. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Again, we see the word good mentioned twice here. And he's saying that the, the end is better than the beginning, and The patient are better than the proud. You have to go through seasons of life that require patience. And those who are prideful in heart are just going to aim to sort of twist things for their own agenda. And he's saying, no, there's something better to sit and wait and contemplate here. Verse 9, he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. That's what happens when patience isn't being practiced. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Fools are the ones who become angry quickly. Anger is like one of those things that we can easily get offended at somebody and we would say, yeah, we're trying to get rid of it, but sometimes we choose to coddle it, to let it fester in our souls and it begins to gnaw away at us from the inside out. The next one, verse 10, contentment is good. Look what he says in verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So if somebody is angry at what's going on, we can be quick to complain about the present in comparison to the past. You know those times where we're like, oh, you know, life now, if if we could just reverse 50 years and go back to where we were before, that's when, you know, kids actually respected their parents and that's where people actually worked hard and that's where... People wore clothes that covered their bodies all the time. That kind of stuff. I was talking with a friend a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about life in the 1950s. He was at church. His parents were at church. And his parents walk out, and they find that their car is gone. They find out that three hooligans in the community jumped into a car during the church service, drove it through Spring Lake, and ended up in the water with it. I mean, what would, what would you say if that happened today? We'd be like, oh, life 50 years ago. Man, they didn't do that back then. Yep, they did. 
And Solomon, 3,000 years earlier, is saying this has been a pattern that's been going on. We've always been looking to the past, but stop pining about the past. It's good for you to live in the moment here. We employ this tactic because things aren't going as well as we think they should be, and we remember just the rosy stuff from the past. So Solomon says, learn to be content. Contentment in the midst of adversity is good. Last, he says this in verses 11 and 12, wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So just like money can provide protection, wisdom is good. It can offer protection in life. Making wise choices preserves life. It helps you through life. Okay, so what has Solomon done up to this point? He's setting us up for an application. He has covered two truths for us. Number one is this. God is the sovereign one who has determined everything. And the second truth is that even in seasons of adversity, God has determined what is good for man. He has reversed some of our values. He's taught us to think that, no, some of these seasons of adversity are really good for us. And so now he leads us into verses 13 and 14 with a word that's repeated twice. And this is the third point that we're leading to here. And it's just the idea of we must realize. I didn't even put it up on the screen for you. We must realize. In verse 13, Solomon writes this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So what he's doing is he's saying, okay, I've just told you at the end of chapter 6 that God is the creator of all things. He's the sovereign one over all things. And then he moves us into chapter seven where we start going through these seasons of adversity where we would say, I would not choose to go to the house of mourning today. That's not my choice today. But we're pushed into those moments, aren't we? We didn't decide to go there. God brought us into that season. I'd rather be hanging out at a party with my friends having laughs, but God is saying, no, what is sort of crooked and out of joint has come from God. And no man can take what is crooked and bent out of joint and make it into a straight line. You can't do it. Here is God. And so he's using this word consider, but this word consider is not just this sort of give some thought to it and then go on your merry way. The word consider here is let it sink down in so that you realize it, so that you understand it. Understand that what God has made crooked in our eyes, these seasons of adversity, is actually for our good. And he uses this word again down in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And Solomon has talked to us about that. There are good times in life. Enjoy the good times. Certainly enjoy them. God has given those out of his hand to you. But he also says this, God has made the one as well as the other. In the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this, that God has made them both. There is sorrow in so many of our lives right now. There is pain and there is adversity in so many lives right now. 
In some of your lives, a relationship has been unexpectedly cut off. There's the death of a relationship right there. In some of your lives, somebody has come along with a rebuke in your life. Hopefully, it was from a wise individual. People are absent. Words are hurting. But God, in his sovereignty, has mysteriously, and I use that word mysteriously because you can't understand a mystery fully, God has mysteriously brought you to this crooked place. It's this season of adversity right now that he has brought you into, and he's saying, even in the seasons of adversity, you need to realize, and get this in your mind, that this is good. There is good in it. I'm not saying that we have to blame God for bad things that happen. Okay, so there's this tension in Scripture. God's not the author of sin. I'm not going to blame him for this. But on the other hand, Solomon is saying we can trust him. We can trust him with what's taken place, even if it's in the, the place of hurting and sorrow. And we're learning things now. If we really realize that God is bringing us into adversity for good to kind of wake up our eyes, there's a few things that we come to grips with. Number one is this, we are certainly limited. You have to realize this, that you're like the two-year-old before the parent. I'm like the two-year-old before the parent. I don't have the full picture at all. And our mind goes back to individuals like Joseph where he is sold into slavery by his brothers, and for two decades, two decades, he can't really see what's going on here. And then eventually God takes that adversity and brings about good so that at the end of Genesis, Joseph can say to his brothers, you intended it for evil. You intended all of this adversity for evil. But in the moment there, God is using it for good. This is the mystery, right? And right now, we are in the middle of these mysteries. Um, we've been in the middle of a mystery for the last 19 months. Who of us would have ever picked the last 19 months to restrict our lives, to cause all kinds of upheaval, to cut off relationships, to cause strife among families, all because of this little virus? Has God determined? Is he the creator? Is he bringing you into seasons of adversity? Yes. Do you realize that the season of adversity is actually something that he is using in a way that brings about his purpose, that brings about order and structure in the lives of his people? Do I understand it? No, we can't get our arms around that. But in the day of adversity, God is still good. He's bringing about good. So we are limited. Second, God is in control. We're seeing that from the beginning, what has come to be created by God and what has been named under God's hand shows us that God is truly in control of all of these things. And we know that he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working all things in creation for the return of his son who's going to come and rule and reign. We are limited, but God is in control. Third, very simply, there is good 
to be found in seasons of adversity. There is good to be found in seasons of adversity. Again, some of you have had hard diseases in your life. Um, Nobody who loves you, speaking of humans, would have written that disease into your story. Nobody would have chosen that for you, yourself included. But then we have living testimonies where we can talk to somebody like Dave and we can hear his message sort of ringing in our ears. I couldn't stand the Crohn's. I didn't like the Crohn's. Was it, did God use it? Yes. Was there something good in it? And he could say, yes, there was something good. And this is what made Dave so likable. We could watch him go through Crohn's and we could watch him go through tax season, but then we could see him up front leading music and not being at all showy, but tears would be coming down his face because in that midst of adversity, God was still good. He was bringing Dave through all of that. And that's where some of you are. You're in that season of adversity and you're like, something is out of joint, it's crooked, and I've been so, so fixed on making it straight. And maybe God's not gonna allow you to make it straight. Maybe he won't allow you to make it straight for 20 years. Maybe he won't allow you to make it straight in the midst of your lifetime because he has a higher purpose to accomplish in your life, which is hard for us to hear. It's very hard for us to hear. But what Solomon is saying is we have to realize this, and it's more helpful that we realize it going into the adversity than trying to realize and understand it like when it starts. God has a way of using adversity in the heart of a Christian. It can be like a windshield that is just caked up with mud. And it's sitting there in the driveway and it's been baked by the sun and you have to take that blade and start scraping off the mud off of that windshield now. And so you scrape that mud off the windshield and eventually you begin to see through the windshield. God sometimes brings us into seasons of adversity and uses that adversity to start scraping on the windshield of our hearts, start scraping so that we can see what, what is really important in life right now. We're all going to come to that point where we're going to be like facing the imminency of death and in that moment, what's going to be most important to us is that God has loved us and he's shown us the grace of Christ in our life. So the Apostle Paul, going through all kinds of challenges, I'm just going to Philippians 3 to close up with this. Philippians chapter 3. Paul's going through all kinds of suffering and he can say this, let me just read this to you. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. That word rubbish has the idea of human excrement. I count them as dung in order that I might gain Christ. So what Paul is doing is he's moving us along here and saying, I have experienced suffering, but this suffering now lasers my attention on the goodness of God, on the value of who Christ is in my life. 
And so when we look at this, we're saying, okay, God, this hurts. I'm going through this season of adversity, but I have eyes for who you are. I have eyes that you are the sovereign one, the creator. I have eyes that even in the midst of this, you are tuning my heart to see or to sing about your grace. You're helping me see that even this situation which hurts, it brings hurt and sorrow to my life. It is painful. Solomon says we experience sorrow. But I I can see that even in the midst of this sorrow, God, you are good. And so we've been through a lot, folks. Um, And there's more to come. But as we wrestle with the text and as we wrestle with Solomon, as he leads us through Ecclesiastes, we're coming to this reality that we can trust God who has determined the times. He has determined even the adversity in our life. And we have to conclude as we see this that yes, still, yes, God, yes, you are good. Will you believe that this week and will you draw in closer as you go through these seasons of adversity that God is still good to his people?